time we stop spreading fear and acknowledge some facts. This is not about freedom or personal choice. You know, you can't work anymore unless you do what I say. That's essentially what a vaccine passport is. Wear masks obviously is a violation of your personal rights, and so is being locked down. You've been patient. Your patience is wearing thin. Open society back up. Restore our freedoms. End this madness. G'day, I'm George Christensen, and you're joining us for another episode of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked, where we're lifting the veil on this uh, Wuhan flu virus caused by the Chinese Communist Party. And what we're finding underneath uh, that mask is uh, a whole heap of nefarious activity. Uh, you know, lots of profiteering by big pharma, censorship by uh, authorities. Uh, we're finding uh, mask mandates, uh, vaccine mandates, and a whole heap of other anti-freedom coercive measures. There is a definite agenda for control at the heart of all of this. And lest anyone say that oh, only anti-vaxxers believe that kind of thing, today we are interviewing someone who is a vaccine developer, medical professor, Professor Nikolai Petrovsky of Flinders University, also of the company Vaccine with an X that's developing its own uh, response to the COVID-19 virus, uh, that is COVAX-19, a protein-based virus. So we're going to talk to Nikolai at length about his uh, views on the current vaccines that are on the market and how his COVAX-19 vaccine is different. Here's Nikolai. Well, it's great to have Professor Nikolai Petrovsky uh, of Flinders University join us for this episode of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked. Uh, uh, Nikolai, you don't mind me calling you Nikolai, do you? Uh, that's fine. Thank you very much. Uh, now, tell us very quickly your uh, academic background. So I initially trained as a physician and, and still work uh, on the medical side. Uh, I'm an, a clinical endocrinologist, uh, but as well as that, I undertook a PhD uh, in the 1990s in immunology, and I've been doing uh, vaccine research and vaccine development uh, for the last uh, 20 or so years, primarily uh, funded by the US National Institutes of Health. Okay, so uh, uh, you're not some Luddite, you're not some anti-vaxxer, you're actually a vaccine developer. Um, tell me, uh, uh, like, I'm hesitant about mRNA vaccines. Am I a crazy person, Nikolai, or should there be some concern that I have? No, you're, you're definitely not a crazy person. Um, I mean, obviously, with all medical therapies, not just vaccines, but drugs, um, you know, we all we have to assess the um, risk-benefit relationship before deciding is this suitable for a particular individual. So there's no such thing as a one-shoe-fits-all solution, whether it's a drug for blood pressure or, or whether it's a vaccine against COVID. And so the consumer needs to be aware of that, that what might be good for another person may not be good for you. And so, you know, that's what we, we normally have a doctor for is to guide you 
into deciding, you know, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And, and one of the reasons we don't allow advertising of drugs in Australia um, is we understand that the average consumer, you know, if they were getting advertisements directed straight at them, might decide that drugs, they wanted to have a particular drug, uh, which may actually be counterproductive or, or might be harmful to them. And, and that's why in Australia, we usually put a doctor into that relationship to um, to discuss the risks and benefits of any drug or vaccine uh, with a patient to make sure it is actually the right choice. So, so again, um, I think when you say, well, um, is, is this vaccine right for me or um, is, am, am I crazy in, in thinking, uh, I'm not sure if the, the risks of, of this are lower than the benefits, um, you know, that's, that's an important question for everyone to ask and, and to get help with uh, finding out what the right answer is for them on an individual basis. So, so let's go to the risks. Uh, the risks of, of these uh, new mRNA vaccines. Um, I am concerned about the uh, number of adverse events. I am concerned about the number of deaths. I am concerned about the anecdotal reports that I hear of underreporting of both uh, deaths and adverse events relating to those vaccines. Uh, and I can't help but think that if this was any other vaccine for any other event, that uh, these vaccines would have already been pulled from the market by the TGA and would have been declared unsafe. Um, am I wrong in thinking that, uh, Professor Nikolai, or should the TGA really have acted here? That, that's a, a really complex question that, that you know, is hard to address or answer in one sentence. Um, what I, I think we, we need to understand is that in the context of how we usually use vaccines, we, we're typically giving them to very healthy individuals by and large. And that's very different to a drug therapy where we're giving them to someone with the disease to help with that disease. So because we're giving vaccines to very healthy uh, individuals for the most part who don't have a disease, um, and only some of them are gonna get exposed to a particular infection, uh, then the safety requirements for a vaccine are dramatically more stringent under normal circumstances than, for instance, the, the safety requirements of a drug therapy for blood pressure or um, particularly for cancer, where we accept a high level of, of risk of the therapy because of the benefits being so great. So, so again, it's all about understanding the risk-benefit relationship, which only can apply to each individual. And again, that's, yeah. I think, the biggest problem here is that you can't say on the whole the the safety of these vaccines is is outweighs um, you know the risks or that the benefits of these vaccines outweigh the risks. You can't do that because you have to apply each of those calculations to an individual such as yourself to come up with with an equation that says yes, in this case the benefits outweigh the risks, or in this case. In fact, unfortunately, the risks outweigh the benefits and therefore it would be better not to be vaccinated. And we know with, with COVID vaccines particularly, 
both the risks are very dramatically across the population. Um, and so, for instance, if we talk about any one proven risk, such as uh, the risk of thrombosis with the AstraZeneca adenoviral uh, platform, um, then it's much higher in, in elder or in younger people, um, interestingly, uh, than in older people. So, so the risk is different according to the individual. Similarly, the benefits are very different. And so, for instance, we know that most of the risks of death uh, with COVID-19 are either in people over the age of 80 years of age or people who have multiple medical conditions. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, assuming you, you look well and healthy um, and, and relatively young um, compared to some of us, then that might put you in a very low risk category from the infection. But it might put you in quite a high risk category in respect of getting a blood clot if you were to have the AstraZeneca vaccine. So if we ran those calculations, and again, mm. uh, this isn't me talking, this is many regulators around the world, uh, particularly in Europe, have run those calculations. And, and, the, and the answers that came out to them were that the risks of that particular vaccine in younger people without medical conditions were greater than the benefits and they suspended use of that particular vaccine in those particular populations. They didn't suspend the use of the vaccine totally, but what they understood is you couldn't just lump everyone together and, and assume that, you know, the safety and, and also the benefits are the equivalent for everyone, whether they're 90 years of age or whether they're a fit, healthy 20-year-old. And I think that's the failure in Australia is, is not so much a failure of should this vaccine be approved or not. Mm. It's a failure to identify that the risk-benefits are very different for different members of the population and really, you know, your family doctor is the person who should be in the position of helping you to calculate those risks and benefits and make a proper informed decision. And I don't think that's happening, mainly because the family doctor is being told he's not allowed to have an opinion uh, on that risk-benefit relationship. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a fatal flaw in our system. And I think it's one that's going to have to be addressed because, you know, it's ludicrous to actually remove a doctor out of the doctor-patient relationship and say, just take your advice from the government, which is a one-shoe-fits-all advice, and we don't want your doctor to be able to give you specific advice relating to you as an individual. If that happened for any other condition, I mean, there'd be a revolution and you know, we, we wouldn't have the same government next week. Um, you know, that it, 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 it's something that should not be interfered with is the doctor-patient relationship. And I can't speak out too highly about the need to protect that relationship and restore it because I think it's been fatally damaged by the actions, you know, of the Australian government over the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. So many things come out of what you've just said there. I mean... Uh... Firstly, um, uh, APRA, uh, the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Agency, uh, is supposed to be something that looks out to see whether uh, uh, doctors are, uh, uh, are practicing incorrectly, I guess, in terms of uh, 
what they actually do with a you know um, some surgeons not out there killing people or something like that but they seem to have become the thought police when it comes to this pandemic um uh, what's your uh, thoughts about that professor nikolai and i know you might need to tread carefully actually uh, throwing a few barbs the way of the uh, the regulator who could ping you as well well look it is a serious concern and i think doctors around australia are rightfully fearful uh, of APRA uh, and, and what appears to be a misuse of their powers. Um, and, as you say, the, the, traditionally the role of APRA um, has been to investigate, you know, doctor's malpractice um, where, where a doctor acts, acts incorrectly. Um, here they're acting to stop doctors actually informing their patients, which would seem to be the antithesis of what all of us understood APRA was meant to be doing. Uh, but as you say, we, we have to be cautious because unfortunately these bodies that believe they have absolute power and unquestionable power, uh, you know, can easily abuse that power uh, to attack individuals who, who might question whether that body is acting appropriately or not. And again, there seem to be no protections in Australia for when we have these government-affiliated bodies uh, acting in what would appear to be highly improper uh, ways that are abusing their power. And, and I think, again, you know, this needs to be the subject of uh, at least an inquiry. And we need to take corrective action. Um, you know, uh, if, if it turns out that these bodies aren't constrained uh, in, in ways that stop them abusing their power, then we, we need to, to change the regulations that govern those bodies. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the issue of uh, coercive uh, public policy measures regarding the vaccination program, uh, they're something that I've been extremely critical of. Uh, now, you, you outlined the risks in your answer a little bit earlier. Uh, those risks, uh, when they really do come down to the individual, and the risks could be fatal uh, in some instances, th those risks really do make uh, any sort of public policy mandate or coercive measure, or it might not even be public policy, it might be an employment or employer uh, related mandate. Uh, those mandates are immoral and unethical. Uh, th there's no other way of looking at it. Uh, what's your view on that? So first, you know, I'd have to say um, that in the past and up to the present, um, although, you know, we have very, very successful vaccines and very important for public health, you know, a deliberate decision has been taken uh, by governments around the world not to get to the point of mandating use of those particular vaccines, despite their proven safety and benefits because it's been felt overall that there are better ways to approach the problem of what we might call vaccine hesitancy um, and and as i say in this respect i'm talking about vaccines with 50 years of of safety and effectiveness data but still you know even though we're very confident about those vaccines that it's been a deliberate decision um, not to go to the point of of forcing people to have them. Um, obviously, we do everything we can to encourage them to have them because we believe, you know, that's in their interests and also the community's interests. But, but you know, we, we don't uh, 
absolutely force individuals. So that so so when it comes to the the, the idea of vaccine mandates, this is a very new idea um, that go runs against you know fifty years of vaccine policy. In fact, so on on that basis alone, I think we really have to question its legitimacy. Um, and that would apply if we were mandating proven vaccines, like vaccines that you know had decades of use. If you're now applying it to what really, and I, I have no hesitation to describe these, these new vaccines for COVID, that particularly new technologies uh, that have never been used in humans really before, which is the mRNA and the adenoviral vector platforms. I have no hesitation calling them experimental therapies. Because, you know, to call something an established therapy is not just measuring its effect for a few months and saying, look, it's doing something, which is obviously, you know, what was done with these vaccines. What you need is, is confidence. You, you, you understand these in the broader sense, not just that they're working, but, you know, what are the potential side effects? How common are the side effects? What are the short and long term side effects? And also, what's the long-term protection data on these vaccines? And the answer is we don't have any of that data. Yep. We don't have any, any data on the long-term likely effectiveness of the vaccine. In fact, what data we have is, is very worrying in terms of uh, the transient nature of the protection we're seeing with these vaccines. And we know nothing about the long-term safety. There just simply isn't any data in humans whatsoever nor is there data that I'm aware, even in animal models, of long-term uh, safety. So in the absence of that, that data, we can't call them anything but experimental therapies. We're still learning about them. Uh, and in that context, you know, if we look uh, historically, um, you know, there are international principles and laws at play which says that, you know, it's unlawful to, to mandate the use of an experimental therapy. And so if, if we are honest and, and call these what they are, experimental vaccines, uh, where there's still more unknowns than knowns, then that would argue that in fact, you know, on fundamental international law principles, uh, you cannot mandate or force their use. Otherwise, you know, uh, you're you're infringing people's civil you know rights and and you know they are intrinsic sort of legal principles that I think are, are global um, mm -hmm. and in fact I think even the Chinese government came out and said that they would not be supporting vaccine mandates because they believed that again they would do more harm than good when a country like China which most people think of as a little bit totalitarian comes out publicly and says that they are going to, to not allow mandates to be enforced. That says a lot about where mandates fit in, in the normal scheme of things. And, and yeah. so I certainly don't support uh, vaccine mandates in, in any shape or form. And I particularly don't support them when applied to vaccines where, as I say, we still really don't know what they're doing, how they're working, or what their long-term consequences are. I think, you know, that has to be a matter of informed consent, and, and certainly it's legitimate to tell people, as we would in a clinical trial, look, we think, you know, this has benefits, but we, we can't say for sure. 
and we would like your cooperation uh, to assist us into generating that data. And I think the use of these vaccines would be much more appropriate within that context of informed consent than it would within the context of actually a mandate, which is the other extreme, and I would imagine uh, ultimately, you know, could be held to be unlawful. So the idea of mandates would be even more unethical in uh, a cohort of young people, given the risks, uh, Professor Nikolai, that you outlined before uh, from some of the, these vaccines with younger people. I mean, we know with AstraZeneca, the risk of thrombosis is greater. We know particularly in the very young cohorts, uh, uh, there's concerns around the risks of pericarditis and myocarditis. Um, so uh, should we even be vaccinating children at all with these uh, mRNA and other new vaccines? Um, and I, I'm guessing, given what you've just said, you'd certainly think that any sort of mandate for children is wrong. I'm thinking that one may be down the line because I've heard uh, there are enough doses for all school-aged children, which indicates to me that they think they're going to be able to dose all school-aged children. And I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on that if there's no sort of mandate in place. But what's your view specifically around vaccinating children? So uh, I, I think, again, we have to start from first principles. So, you know, what we have to look at with children are what are the benefits? In other words, what are we trying to achieve both at the individual level who's been vaccinated, but also at the community level? And then what are the risks? So if we, we look at on the benefit side of the equation, um, then what we have to recognise is the risk to children of severe disease from COVID and particularly risk of death is exceptionally low, mm -hmm. um, particularly healthy children. Um, you know, the few children that have died, unfortunately, from COVID have typically been children with disabilities and uh, multiple medical comorbidities. Um, so right. we really haven't seen any significant deaths of children uh, who are right. perfectly healthy. Um, which is not to say that children may not get sick enough to go into hospital, but fortunately they generally will recover. Um, so, so that's the first thing is the benefit is small because the actual risk to the children of the infection is small. So it's not saying it's zero, but it's much smaller than a person over 80, for instance, who has a high risk. Mm. The other question of benefit, which is implied, but in fact the science says it, it's not a benefit, um, is the question of uh, are children a major transmitter of, of the virus within the community? So are they transmitting the virus to, to older people? Uh, and also, which is related to that, uh, is do the current vaccines block that um, transmission if it's happening? So the evidence we, we have, in fact, is that children uh, in this case, don't appear to be the major transmitters of, of COVID-19 through the community. Uh, it seems to be more um, young adults who, who are the primary transmitters of the virus. Um, and as well as that, there is no evidence, in fact, there's a lot of negative evidence that the current vaccine technologies, um, even if children were the, the main transmitters, there's 
as I say, minimal evidence that the vaccine would actually reduce that risk of transmission. So, so when we reduce it all down on the benefit side, um, there's just a small theoretical risk that a vaccine may reduce, you know, a small number of hospitalizations uh, in children, but it's going to be very, very low. Maybe one in 30 to one in 50,000 children may actually benefit from the vaccine, which is a very low number. We then have to then look on the, the risk side of the equation. Um, and there we see that, in fact, with these vaccines, that the risks, uh, uh, unlike many other things, the risk seems to go up as you go younger. Um, certainly the risk of myocarditis is greater um, as you go into younger populations. Uh, and, and also the risk of thrombosis uh, we've seen is greater in younger uh, individuals than, than older individuals. So this is an not usual. Most drugs have higher risks the older you are. In the case of these particular vaccines, the risks are much more weighted at the young. So in this situation, we have really a real dichotomy because the young in this case are getting the lowest demonstrable benefits, and yet they have the highest demonstrable risks from the vaccine. And so, so there, when you, you run those calculations, you have to be able to justify that the risks uh, are less than the benefits. And that's actually quite challenging to do. And I've certainly not seen any convincing data that would say the benefits of immunising children at this point in time with these particular vaccines, you know, that the benefits clearly outweigh the risks. And in that case, you know, I think uh, it would be reasonable to conclude that there is no strong support for immunisation of children right at this point in time with these vaccines. That may change as we go forward, but that's my assessment today. Uh, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I'm always open to seeing evidence that might change that opinion. So, Nikolai, you've got your own vaccine, or at least your company vaccine with an X does, called COVAX. Uh, tell us, where is that vaccine actually at? Uh, how is it different to the vaccines that are on the Australian market at the moment? And given that... Uh, people like me and others sort of have, have an issue or concern at least about uh, the lack of long-term safety data from say these mRNA vaccines. Uh, how is it that our concern should be any different with uh, your vaccine when it hits the market? So thanks for that question. Um, so yes, we're developing a protein-based vaccine, uh, which is called COVAX-19 in Australia, but also called Spikogen overseas. So the way in which it's different is it's built around a, a platform uh, which is making synthetic proteins, um, which has been around now uh, for over 40 years. Uh, and a lot of the childhood vaccines we give every child on the planet are based around protein-based uh, vaccine approaches. So although obviously the application to COVID is new, the technology itself is actually um, well established uh, and we have safety data on protein vaccines in, in, in fact, every person on the planet um, yeah. who's had these vaccines. So it's very different to the new technologies, the mRNA and the adenoviral vector technologies, which are completely new. So they haven't been tested before. 
Um, so that provides us with a reassurance that the platform that we're building these vaccines around is incredibly, in fact, the safest uh, vaccine approach that, that currently exists. Obviously, we then have to confirm that in humans uh, that that is true also for COVID-19, and we've done that. We've been through the, the typical phase one, phase two, phase three trials, uh, which involved uh, just under 17,000 people. Uh, we confirmed that we, we saw no adverse events that were related wow. to the vaccine in terms of serious adverse events. You know, you get your usual sore arm for 24 hours and we don't pretend that doesn't happen. Um, but beyond that, we didn't see any uh, problems such as myocarditis or, or blood clots. Uh, subsequent to that, the vaccine actually was approved uh, for use in, in Iran. Um, and the reason for that is that's where we did the, the phase two and phase three clinical trials that showed the vaccine uh, was working. And since then, uh, over 2 million doses of the vaccine have been rolled out in Iran. And again, uh, with post-marketing uh, pharmacovigilance, which is a system where you keep uh, watching what's happening to the people receiving those 2 million doses, uh, there haven't been any reports of serious adverse events. So, uh, as I say, that's very reassuring. It certainly fits with what we know about protein-based vaccines, so it's nice that this is just yet another example of a protein-based vaccine uh, which doesn't come with any of the serious um, side effects that you know, we've, we've discussed earlier with these new platforms. Um, so, so that's the stage we're currently at. We've obviously uh, uh, putting in an application to the TGA, so we're, we're you know, in, in that process right now of interacting with the TGA to see if we can get our vaccine uh, approved uh, for use in Australia, and we're also doing that, um, you know, around the world, including with the the World Health Organization. So we're hopeful that that over the next uh, six months or so, we'll see our vaccine uh, available in in multiple uh, countries. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, uh, here's hoping because uh, we certainly need uh, other options that are uh, that are lower risk. That's for sure. Uh, thank you very much uh, for all the information that you've imparted uh, to my listeners this episode. Uh, and thanks for joining us, Professor Nikolai Petrovsky. It's a pleasure. Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked is hosted by George Christensen, MP. You can find more episodes from this series at goodsource.news forward slash unmasked. This show is produced and published without censorship or paywall by the team at The Good Source, thanks to The Good Source supporters. If you'd like to be part of the solution by helping us produce more truthful content like this each month, head to goodsource.news and click on the support button. Make sure to follow George Christensen on Telegram, Getter, Gab, Parler, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. You can also help us beat the algorithms by giving us five stars and encouraging comments in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.